This message was presented at the GYC to the End in Houston, Texas. For other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org. Okay, so we're ready to start our last presentation for our seminar. It's gone by fast. Hard to believe we're already to our sixth presentation. So let's bow our heads and we're going to start this last meeting. Father, we thank you that we can consider the everlasting gospel of Jesus Christ. We're thankful that you save us from our sins. And I pray that we would have clarity of understanding about the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And may we not only understand it, but may we experience it and live it. I pray that this presentation today would bring encouragement to each and every one of us. So I pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. I am going to try to leave some time at the end for some questions. And um, we can take questions related to pretty much everything that we've covered in the six-part So we'll have a few minutes for that. So this last presentation is gospel clarity for the last days. We have been given a commission to preach the everlasting gospel. The gospel is the same gospel that you find in the Old Testament as you find in the New Testament. There's not the Old Testament gospel of law and works and the New Testament gospel of grace. Rather, we have the everlasting gospel found in all of the scripture, which is why Abraham is called the father of faith, because he had an understanding of righteousness by faith and experienced righteousness by faith all the way back in the book of Genesis. Now, Matthew 24, verse 14, tells us, tells us that the gospel is to be preached as a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. Now, Certainly that includes the proclamation of the gospel, but the gospel being preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations is more than a proclamation in order for the end to come. If we were to put our best Adventist preacher on live stream around the world where everybody in the world could hear the gospel preached that Jesus died for our sins and that he empowers us to live his life, that alone would not bring the end. There needs to be something more to that. Revelation 18.1 shows us the fulfillment of the gospel being preached as a witness. When the gospel is preached as a witness, the earth will be illuminated with the glory of God's character because it's not simply a proclamation it's a demonstration. And so the gospel as a witness being preached to all nations and then the end shall come will reach its fulfillment in Revelation 18 where the earth sees and not only hears. Yes, there is a proclamation component to the loud cry of Revelation 18, but there's also a demonstration component. Now, the everlasting gospel is at the heart of the three angels' messages. It is the same gospel from Genesis 3.15 and Genesis 15.6 as it is in the New Testament, where in Genesis... 
Christ says, I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. There was the promise of redemption all the way back in Genesis 3.15. Genesis 15.6, it says, Abraham believed in the Lord and he counted it to him for righteousness. You see righteousness by faith all the way back in the Old Testament. This everlasting gospel is a gospel that saves us from our sins not in our sins. Jesus came not to save us in our sins, but from our sins. It is different than the mainstream Christian gospel that comes from the fallen churches of Babylon. Jesus taught Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verses 3 and 5, that one must be born again to be saved. And as I already said, Matthew one twenty one teaches that Jesus will save us from our sins, yet the mainstream Christian gospel teaches that we can be saved in sin. Questions on doctrine tried to meld Adventist theology with the evangelical gospel. Desmond Ford took the new, the next step. And as I said in the previous presentation, if we are sinners by nature, we will be sinning till Jesus comes. Therefore, mediation cannot close at the end of probation and the investigation. And thus to him, 1844 does not add up. Of course, all of that is a fallacy. Desmond Ford's gospel teaches that by nature we will sin till Jesus comes. Thus, we can only be saved by a gospel that covers us, but that can only partially change us. And he says, yes, our life is improved by following Jesus. However, sin remains but does not reign. However, Ellen White clearly says in the book Steps to Christ, one sin persistently cherished will eventually neutralize all the power of the gospel. So if you're saying sin remains but does not reign, one sin actually will reign in your life if you allow it to remain. This gospel teaches that we are saved only by a legal justification. And it also teaches that sin is a state of being, not simply a choice. Sanctification is not part of salvation. It is only a fruit and it will never be complete. That's what Ford taught. This gospel that promotes Forgiveness with only partial transformation is incomplete. It leads to a lowering of standards in the church. Lower standards cannot cause one to be lost according to this version of the gospel. Therefore, we see all kinds of foolishness coming into the church, dancing with drums and jewelry and acceptance of LGBT and all sorts of things because we haven't seen Jesus for all he is and all he wants to do for us. So what is the true gospel of Jesus Christ? We've spent enough time talking about the error. What's the true gospel? This gospel saves us from sin. And it shows us that the only Bible definition of sin is that sin is the transgression of the law. Ellen White, quoting 1 John 3 verse 4, says the only definition we find in the Bible for sin is that sin is the transgression of the law. We find that in Selected Messages, volume 1, page 320. But by the way, if you look up that statement, you'll find multiple different sources where she says the same thing. That the that the only definition, probably 15 to 20 references, the only definition we find in the Bible for sin is that sin is the transgression of the law. Ezekiel 18.20 is a very clear Bible text that says, the son shall not bear the iniquity of the father, so why should I be condemned for Adam's sin when I had no choice in it? The Bible says I don't bear the iniquity for my father Adam. 
not, a, not only my own biological father in, a, in the immediate sense, but also for the father of the human race, Adam. Romans 8 verse 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. So notice there is condemnation when you're walking after the flesh. And if you go to Galatians 5, and we talked about this in our first presentation about the works of the flesh, if you want to know what it looks like to walk according to the flesh, Galatians 5, starting in verse 19, says, Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, Heresies, as I mentioned in our first presentation, heresies are an evidence of a carnal mind and of the work of the flesh going on, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like, of the which I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. So when you are walking according to the flesh, you are under condemnation. But when you are walking after the Spirit, you are no longer under, under condemnation. Condemnation does not come from being born. Condemnation comes from transgressing God's law. Transgression of God's law is a choice, not a state of being. Condemnation is released when we choose to be in Christ Jesus and no longer walk after the flesh. And that's where questions on doctrine fell into trouble because they tried to meld this evangelical gospel which says you're under condemnation for your nature and you'll be sinning until Jesus comes. Therefore, the only thing that saves you is a legal covering when in reality the condemnation is released when we no longer walk after the flesh but after the spirit. Now, based on that reality that I am not condemned by being born, that I'm not a sinner by nature, I'm a sinner by choice. And yes, the Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So that's where my condemnation comes is because I made a choice to to transgress God's law. Now we can say, yes, Jesus can be our example. The very next verse is in Romans 8, 3, and 4. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled where? In us. us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. So what I see from this passage at the very least is, so Jesus is my example. I have weak flesh, so in my own strength, I don't have the power to overcome sin. But because Jesus came in the likeness of sinful flesh, he condemned sin in the flesh. In other words, he condemned the power that sin automatically would have over the flesh because he showed that in the likeness of sinful flesh, We can walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit and the righteousness of the law, which is the character of Christ, might be fulfilled not outside of us only, but in us. Now, some say, well, he came in the likeness of sinful flesh, but it wasn't really sinful flesh. But notice Philippians 2.7 says, he was made in the likeness of men. And that, but he really did come as a man because First John 4 says that if you say that Jesus Christ didn't come in the flesh, that's the teaching of Antichrist. So Jesus Christ really did come as a man and he really did come in sinful flesh. Now let me just say this because in the previous presentation I was giving a historical overview and I did share some countering statements to what was in the book of Questions on Doctrine. But this is just more of now a presentation of what I believe the Bible and the Spirit of Prophecy says. Now, 
when you go to the book of Luke, speaking of Jesus, it describes him as being that holy thing conceived of the Holy Spirit. There is, because some people who hear those who promote this idea that Christ took a fallen nature say, oh, you're saying Jesus was born exactly like me. And I'm saying, no, I'm not saying that. Here's what I'm saying. Jesus was born under the control of the Holy Spirit. And he was under the control of the Holy Spirit until the age of the account, uh, until the age of accountability. So in other words, he was born with a sanctified will. And I am not born with a sanctified will. But when I reach the age of accountability and when I choose to give my life to Christ, I can become a partaker of the divine nature. And now I'm on the same footing as Jesus, who is my example in all things. And yes, he did accept the result of the working of the great law of heredity. He didn't just accept innocent physical infirmities of hunger and tiredness. Yes, he did inherit all the hereditary tendencies of fallen humanity, but those were were kept in check by the power of the Holy Spirit throughout his entire life. 1 Peter 2, 21 to 23 says that Christ left us an example that we should follow his steps. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. And that's a description of the 144,000 who have no guile in their mouth. Now, notice what 1 John chapter 4, verses 2 and 3 say, Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist, whereof ye have heard that it should come, and even now already is in the world. So in other words, if you say Jesus didn't really come in the flesh, that's Antichrist. Now, Romans 8, 3, and 4 says he came in the likeness of sinful flesh. Philippians 2, 7 says he came in the likeness of men. He really did come as a man. He really did come in sinful flesh to condemn the power of sin in my fallen human nature. The theology of Babylon and Antichrist says that Jesus is not like us and cannot really be our example completely, only partially, because we can't really be like him. Notice what Ellen White says in Selected Messages, Volume 3, page 139. Bear in mind that Christ overcoming an obedience is that of a true human being. In our conclusions, we make many mistakes because of our erroneous views of the human nature of our Lord. When we give to his human nature a power that it is not possible for man to have in his conflicts with Satan, we destroy the completeness of his humanity. Is that not clear? He imputed grace and power, or no, his imputed grace and power he gives to all who receive him by faith. The obedience of Christ to his Father was the same obedience that is required of man. Man cannot overcome Satan's temptations without divine power to combine with his instrumentality. So with Jesus Christ, he could lay hold of divine power. He came not to our world to give the obedience of a lesser God to a greater, but as a man to obey God's holy law, and in this way he is our example. So please don't tell me that Jesus is different than us and can't help us to overcome and to be like him. He he is like us in all things when we become partakers of the divine nature and we can live the life that Christ lived. We don't want to destroy the completeness of his humanity. Now, I read this statement in the previous session, the Desire of Ages 122. In our own strength, it is impossible for us to deny the clamors of our fallen nature. Through this channel, Satan will bring temptation upon us. Christ knew that the enemy would come 
to every human being to take advantage of hereditary weakness and by his false insinuations to ensnare all whose trust is not in God. And now notice this, and by passing over the ground which man must travel, this isn't the ground that Adam traveled prior to the fall. This is the ground that human beings travel over now. Our Lord has prepared the way for us to overcome. It is not his will that we should be placed at a disadvantage in the conflict with Satan. Now, notice what the Bible says in Revelation chapter 3, verse 21. This is Jesus speaking to the Laodicean church. And in verse 20, he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man will open the door and hear, hear my voice, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. Jesus is saying, I'm not in your heart and in your life, Laodicea. I'd like to come in. When we open the door of our heart to Jesus and allow him to come in, this is analogous with Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God. So Jesus promises that we can overcome as he overcame. So the very next verse, he says, To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame. And I'm set down with my Father in his throne. Jesus knew that the message that Laodicea needed was that they needed the promise that we, the Laodicean church, could overcome as Jesus overcame. That's why Satan is attacking that message because he doesn't want Laodicea to believe that we can overcome as Jesus did. First John chapter 5 verse 4 shows that we overcome by faith. This is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Thus, if we can overcome as Jesus overcame, we overcome by the same faith as he did. That is the faith of Jesus. And this is the third angel's message. Now, I'm going to offer some clarity on justification. We have justification declared. Romans 4, verses 6 through 8 say, Even as David described it, also describeth the blessedness of the man, unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works, saying, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. Clearly, justification offers imputed righteousness with forgiveness where our sins are covered, and the Lord will not impute sin to us. And this is a message that we desperately need as Adventists because a lot of times we do place an emphasis because of some of the liberal tendencies in the church. We in the conservative world will sometimes place an emphasis on overcoming, but we can't forget about forgiveness because if we aren't certain on forgiveness, how can we truly believe that we can overcome? Justification by faith is a faith that believes that my sins are forgiven. And that was certainly part of the most precious message that Brothers Jones and Wagner brought to the church that they needed so desperately in 1888, a belief of forgiveness of sin. 6 B.C. 1071, as the penitent sinner contrite before God, discerns Christ's atonement in his behalf and accepts this atonement as his only hope in this life and the future life, his sins are pardoned. This is justification by faith. Pardon and justification are one and the same thing. Through faith, the believer passes from the position of a rebel, a child of sin and Satan, to the position of a loyal subject of Christ Jesus, not because of an inherent goodness, but because Jesus receives him as his child by adoption. 
And then the quote goes on to say, the grace of Christ is freely to justify the sinner without merit or claim on his part. Justification is a full, complete pardon of sin. The moment a sinner accepts Christ by faith, that moment he is pardoned, the righteousness of Christ is imputed to him, and he is no more to doubt God's forgiving grace. And that's something that we all need. We need to believe in God's forgiving grace, to not doubt it. Don't stay down on the ditch and say, oh, I'm too bad for God to forgive. That's not faith. Whatsoever is not a faith is sin. We need justification by faith. Jesus is a complete Savior. He can save to the uttermost. And he will save you and he will justify you. But there is our part. We are to believe. Now, not only is there justification declared, which, by the way, everything that I've shared so far, the evangelicals agree with that. But there's also justification experience. Notice what Titus 3, verses 5 through 7 says. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Now, evangelicals would think that this is describing sanctification, but Paul says, no, that being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So justification is connected with regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. This is connected with the new birth experience. Now, notice this famous statement from Thoughts from the Mount of Blessing, page 114. God's forgiveness is not merely a judicial act, and it is, by which he sets us free from condemnation. It is not only forgiveness for sin, but reclaiming from sin. You see that? It is the outflow of redeeming love that transforms the heart. David had the true conception of forgiveness when he prayed, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. So forgiveness sets us free from condemnation. It forgives us for sin, but it also reclaims us from sin. And we see that a new heart is created within us. It's a clean heart where a right spirit is renewed within us. Now, notice a few other statements from Ellen White on justification. This is Selected Messages, Volume 1, page 394. In ourselves we are sinners, but in Christ we are righteous. Having made us righteous through the imputed righteousness of Christ, God pronounces us just and treats us as just. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the evangelicals would say, having declared us righteous through the imputed righteousness of Christ, God pronounces us just. You know, Jones and Wagner taught that justification was to be made righteous. And this is what the Bible teaches. This is what Ellen White teaches, that there is a regeneration, being having a new heart created within us. Christ's Object Lessons 163, this is quoting Romans 3.26, as the sinner drawn by the power of Christ approaches the uplifted cross and prostrates himself before it, there is a new creation. A new heart is given him. He becomes a new creature in Christ Jesus. God himself is the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. So notice that there's a new creation associated with being justified. Then a few other statements. 6 BC 1098, by receiving his imputed righteousness through the transforming power of the Holy Spirit, we become like him. So it's not only a declared legal declaration, it's a transformation. And then Review and Herald, August 19, 1890, to be pardoned in the way that Christ pardons is not only to be forgiven, but to be renewed in the spirit of our mind. The Lord says, a new heart will I give thee unto thee. The image of Christ is to be stamped upon the very mind, heart, and soul. So 
this is, this is encouraging to me because, look, if we simply offer forgiveness without transformation, someone who comes to the church and says, I have a smoking problem. And we say, come to Jesus and he will forgive you. But you know what? There's going to be days where you go back to that cigarette. What hope is that offering to the nicotine addict? Now, Sometimes it can kind of sound scary to say, what, you're saying I can have complete victory over sin? Yes, I am, through the power of Jesus Christ. And what I'm also saying is, why would you want to hang on to the idea that you can keep sinning? When if you think about it, sin in your life is what brings discouragement and unhappiness. And God is saying, I can deliver you from that. I can pardon you and give you a new heart, and I can stamp the image of Christ upon your very mind, heart, and soul. Isn't that what you want? A new life? Now notice Selected Messages, volume 1, page 366. But while God can be just and yet justify the sinner through the merits of Christ, no man can cover his soul with the garments of Christ's righteousness while practicing known sins or neglecting known duties. So that statement right there, the first sentence, obliterates the idea that you can be covered with the righteousness of Christ while you're still sinning knowingly. Now, if it's unknown sin that you have that hasn't been revealed to you, that's different. But known sin, you're not going to be justified if you're practicing known sin. Continuing, God requires the entire surrender of the heart before justification can take place. And in order for man to retain justification, there must be continual obedience through active living faith that works by love and purifies the soul. So notice this, in order to be justified, there is an entire surrender that must take place. This is the new birth experience. And then it says, in order for man to retain justification, there must be continual obedience through active loving faith that works by love and purifies the soul. That second part, continual obedience, that's sanctification. Now, Ellen White makes the statement, sanctification is the work of the lifetime, and people say, oh, that means I'll never get there. No, sanctification is maintaining your surrender every day. I die daily to the Lord. Now, it's a growth process. It's not like you have instantaneous, perfect sanctification where on day one of your Christian life, you're the full measure of maturity. Now, there's a growth where you become more seasoned by the grace of God as your life advances, but at every stage of your life, you're surrendered to the Lord. That's how justification is the work of a lifetime. So entire surrender is entire, is required for justification. Sanctification maintains the surrender of justification with continual obedience through act of living faith that works by love. Now I read this verse, 1 Thessalonians 5.23, the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. So 100% we can be sanctified. 2 Thessalonians 2.13 says God has chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit. And 1 Corinthians 1.30 says, But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God has made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And I don't have this verse on the screen, but 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 3 says, For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that you should abstain from fornication and so forth. Now, Ellen White has a few things to say. 
This is the statement that sanctification is the work of a lifetime. Here's the entire context of it. Christ's Object Lessons, page 65. The germination of the seed represents the beginning of spiritual life and the development of the plant as a beautiful figure of Christian growth. As in nature, so in grace, there can be no life without growth. The plant must either grow or die. As its growth is silent and imperceptible but continuous, so is the development of the Christian life. At every stage of development, our life may be perfect. Now, that's the amazing thing to me. She says this right before she makes the famous statement, and then people say, because it's the work of a lifetime, we'll never be perfect. And yet she says, at every stage of development, our life may be perfect. Yet if God's purpose for us is fulfilled, there will be continual advancement. Sanctification is the work of a lifetime. As our opportunities multiply, our experience will enlarge and our knowledge increase. We shall become strong to bear responsibility and our maturity will be in proportion to our privileges. So yes, sanctification is the work of a lifetime, but in the very same paragraph, she says at every stage of development, our life may be perfect. So sanctification is maintaining a surrender. And let me tell you something, the happiest place to be on earth is in a surrendered walk with Jesus Christ. That's the happiest place to be. Thankfully, we have a merciful God that if we do stumble, he will forgive us. And his mercy is new every morning, and he offers that to each one of us. But God's primary plan for us is for us to continue to walk by grace in an overcoming life. Now, again, some have said that because sanctification is the work of a lifetime, we will never get there. However, sanctification represents the walk of holiness that is the daily process of dying to self for the rest of our lives. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15.31, I die daily. The daily growth of sanctification maintains the original surrender and justification by faith that marks the new birth experience. Now, this true gospel of Jesus Christ, we are commissioned to preach the everlasting gospel in the context of the judgment hour. Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17 describe this gospel, and I would invite you to turn in your Bibles to Romans 1, verses 16 and 17. If you have your Bibles with you, this is very familiar. Paul says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now, why does it have power? For therein, or in the gospel, is the righteousness of God revealed. From faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Now, the word power is the Greek word dunamis, which is similar to dynamite. So the gospel has power like dynamite. The gospel is not lifestyle modification. It represents entire transformation. The gospel is for everyone who believes or who has faith. What makes this gospel so powerful? Here's how. It is that in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. You see, the gospel doesn't really have power if you say the power of the gospel is simply the righteousness of God declared, because the world can hear about God all they want, but if they don't see him, they're not going to be impressed. What makes the gospel powerful is that the righteousness of God is revealed in the lives of those who have faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. So the just who live by faith 
reveal the righteousness of God. Those justified by faith reveal the righteousness of God. It's ironic that the Christian world tries to use the book of Romans to say that justification is simply righteousness declared, yet when Paul sets forth the preaching of the gospel in Romans 1 verses 16 and 17, he says, the gospel is powerful because the righteousness of God is revealed in the lives of those who believe, and those are the just who live by faith. In other words, they have justification by faith. That's the righteousness of God revealed. That is the power of God. And this will reach its final fulfillment in Revelation 18.1, when an angel comes down from heaven having great power and the earth is lightened with its glory. Now, Romans 1, verses 16 and 17 is the verse that God used through Martin Luther to ignite the Protestant Reformation as Martin Luther is climbing up the steps in um, on Pilate's staircase in Rome. He hears the voice saying, the just shall live by faith, and God used that verse to ignite the Protestant Reformation and to bring down the fallen Roman church state, and God is going to use that message again to bring down the fallen Roman church state to proclaim that Babylon has fallen, has fallen. It, it's connected also not only to the Protestant Reformation, it is also connected to the ignition of the Second Advent Movement. Because you see, Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, where it says the just shall live by faith, is referencing Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. And I want you to turn in your Bible to Habakkuk. This is one of the minor prophets in the Old Testament. And this is where we find for the first time this Bible phrase, the just shall live by faith. And here it is, the just shall live by his faith. And notice what Habakkuk is saying. If you look in Habakkuk chapter 1, Habakkuk chapter 1 comes with this warning that the Chaldeans are about to overrun the people of God. Well, the Chaldeans are the Babylonians. They're about to overrun God's people. So that should get your prophetic antenna up and running because God's last day people have a modern Babylon to contend with. And so Babylon is coming to contend with God's last day people. And in Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 1, we read, I will stand upon my watch and set me upon the tower and will watch to see what he will say unto me and what I shall answer when I am reproved. So in other words, God is saying, I am going to send a message of reproof that will be necessary for you to receive in order to keep you from being overrun by the Chaldeans or the Babylonians. You're on your watchtower and you're looking to see what's going to happen. And the question is, how will you respond to the message of reproof that God sends? Now, we're going to see the reproof come, but it doesn't come immediately. Verse 2 then says, And the Lord answered me and said, Write the vision and make it plain upon tables that he may run that readeth it. For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it shall speak and not lie. Though it tarry, wait for it, because it will surely come, it will not tarry. Do you know what vision that's referring to? It's the vision of the 2300 days and of the tarrying time between the early disappointment in the spring of 1844 and in the autumn of, of 1844. Let me read to you what Ellen White says. This is Great Controversy 391. Interwoven with prophecies which they had regarded as applying to the time of the Second Advent was instruction specially adapted to their state of uncertainty. And I'm going to skip ahead. The next paragraph. Among these prophecies was that of Habakkuk 2, 1-4. And then she quotes these verses all the way through. Um, then she says, as early as 1842, the direction... 
given in this prophecy to write the vision and make it plain upon tables that he may run that readeth it had suggested to Charles Fitch the preparation of a prophetic chart. And then she goes on to say that they understood this tarrying time to be connected to their their delay between the spring and the fall of 1844, and it's connected to the message of the 2300 days. So here's the thing. Habakkuk 2, 1-4, and the message of justification by faith, describes the prophetic rise of the Second Advent Movement. The Second Advent Movement, based on this prophecy, wrote the message of the 2300 days on a chart so that the messengers could run that read it. Men would run to and fro with the knowledge of prophecy. The chart pointed out the 2300-day prophecy and the cleansing of the sanctuary. And the message of Habakkuk showed that the Babylonians were about to overrun God's people. Now, why were the Babylonians about to overrun God's people? Well, here's the message of reproof that God's people need to accept if they're going to be part of the work of the cleansing of the sanctuary. And that is Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, where it says, Behold, his soul, which is lifted up, is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. So what is the message of reproof that God sends to his last day people? He says, you are a proud people. Your soul, which is lifted up, is not upright. I have a question for you. Did you realize that Adventists are a proud people? We're as proud as any people on the planet. And that spirit comes from Babylon, where Nebuchadnezzar says, is this not great Babylon that I have built? You know, when I um, come to meetings like this or other similar meetings, and you go through the booths, or you talk to people about their ministries. I'm thankful to see all the ministries that that are here and the work that they're doing. But sometimes you'll get a little bit of a vibe from from ministries, and the, we can all do this, where we have this vibe to say, if everyone did ministry the way I did ministry, then Adventism would be what it needs to be. And we get the spirit of pride for what we are doing rather than simply being satisfied with filling the role that God wants us to fill. And so you have all these issues that pop up in the church and these battles that take place because there's so much pride in the church. But here's the thing. This is how Babylon is trying to destroy God's end time people by instilling within God's true church the same spirit of pride that personifies Babylon. And God says, I'm sending you a message of reproof. And if you accept that message of reproof, then you won't be overrun by the Babylonians. So Adventists have this pride problem. What is the remedy for the pride problem? It's the message that the just shall live by faith. Now, what does the message of justification by faith have to do with the pride problem? This has to do with forgiveness and cleansing of sin. Notice what Ellen White says in Testimonies to Ministers 456. What is justification by faith? It is the work of God in laying the glory of man in the dust and doing for man that which it is not in his power to do for himself. When men see their own nothingness, they are prepared to be clothed with the righteousness of Christ. And then she goes on to say a few other things. So here we see that justification by faith is the laying of the glory of man in the dust. Now, interestingly, that's connected to this vision of a tarrying time of the 2300 days of soul cleansing. Interestingly, if you think about it, laying the glory of man in the dust is cleansing the soul of sin. 
Therefore, in order for the sanctuary to be cleansed, Adventists must experience true justification by faith, which lays the glory of man in the dust, which then gives us the true power of the gospel, because the righteousness of God cannot be revealed in my life while pride still resides in my heart. And that's one of the great challenges for us individually as a people today. You know, it's so easy to say, well, my particular view is better than their view. I can explain the Bible better than them on this point or that point. And then we can say, wow, look at what I know. Look what they don't know. And then God can't use you. It's like the the publican and the Pharisee where the Pharisee says, God, I thank you that <laughs> I'm not like that guy. And you know, we do that as Seventh-day Adventists. In all sectors of Adventism, you have conservatives saying, God, I thank you that I don't eat like those liberals and dress like those liberals and do what those liberals do. And I'm not saying you should do what they're doing. And then you have the liberals saying, God, I thank you that I'm not judgmental and legalistic like them. And now you're judgmental. And God can't use any of that because it's all pride. And the work of justification by faith is the work of God in laying the glory of man in the dust. And the publican said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He saw his nothingness. And God could justify that man. And that's how we need to approach God. The false gospel of Babylon teaches that justification is a legal declaration only that does not change the heart. The everlasting gospel teaches that justification by faith is soul cleansing as the pride of man is laid in the dust. Thus, the gospel of Desmond Ford and QOD is incompatible with the cleansing of the sanctuary and of the true Bible gospel. This is another statement from Ellen White Christ Object Lessons. This robe, speaking of the righteousness of Christ, woven in the loom of heaven has in it not one thread of human devising. Christ and his humanity Humanity wrought out a perfect character, and this character he offers to impart to us. All our righteousness are his filthy rags. By his perfect obedience, he has made it possible for every human being to obey God's commandments. When we submit ourselves to Christ, the heart is united with his heart. The will is merged in his will. The mind becomes one with his mind. The thoughts are brought into captivity to him. We live his life. This is what it means to be clothed with the garment of Christ's righteousness. It means that your heart is united with his heart. Your will is merged in his will. Your mind becomes one with his mind. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Your thoughts even, not just your actions, but your thoughts are brought into captivity to him. We live his life. That's what it means to be clothed with the garment of Christ's righteousness. Then as the Lord looks upon us, he sees not the fig leaf garment, not the nakedness and deformity of sin, but his own robe of righteousness, which is perfect obedience to the law of Jehovah. Now Ellen White makes this interesting statement in Maranatha, page 249. There must be a purifying of the soul here upon the earth in harmony with Christ's cleansing of the sanctuary in heaven. God's people are now to have their eyes fixed on the heavenly sanctuary where our great high priest is interceding for his people. So interestingly, soul cleansing, which is justification by faith on earth, leads to the cleansing of the sanctuary in heaven because justification by faith lays 
the glory of man in the dust so that we can be cleansed of sin. And that then leads to the cleansing of the sanctuary in heaven. Ellen White has the famous statement in April 1, 1890, where she says, several have written to me inquiring of the message of justification by faith is the third angel's message. And she says, I have answered, it is the third angel's message in verity. And then she quotes, because we often start right right there, she quotes Revelation 18, 1, which says, after these things I saw another angel come down from heaven, having great power, and the earth was lightened with its glory. And then she says, brightness, glory, and power are to be connected with the proclamation of the third angel's message, and it will be accompanied by the demonstration of the power of the Spirit. So when we have justification by faith, we are prepared to receive the outpouring of the latter rain, to give a loud cry, because our pride has been laid in the dust. Now, I'm going to transition here to something. Many of you were here last night when Ted Wilson spoke, and he actually said the very same thing. This is what he said at annual council, because the concept of a last generation is under attack in Adventism today as well. And the last generation is simply a concept that's connected to an understanding of righteousness by faith. Notice what Elder Wilson said at his sermon. Church family, there are those in our ranks who disparage our hopeful expectation to be the last generation before Christ's soon coming. I ask, who would not want to be part of the last generation and see Jesus come in their lifetime? What a privilege to realize that Christ wants to come back as soon as possible and we can be ready for his coming and share this hope through complete dependence on Christ. Our works will not save us, but dependence on Christ and his justifying and sanctifying righteousness will save us and make us more and more like him each day. Brothers and sisters around the world, we are united in our hope of Christ's soon coming. Stand firm for God's truth. And that was his sermon on October 12, 2018 at the annual council in Battle Creek, Michigan. And he basically said the very same thing last night as his closing point in the challenge that he gave to us last night. Now, how does the gospel connect to the last generation? Let me show you a few concepts from the Bible. Turn to John chapter 12, verses 23 and 24. John chapter 12, verses 23 and 24. And Jesus answered them saying, The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Now clearly Jesus is speaking of his death on the cross, and this is certainly the gospel message. Notice verse 24. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. Jesus is saying that when I die, I'm like a seed of corn that is planted in the ground. One seed of corn goes only so far in a meal if you put it on a plate of food. But if you plant that seed in the ground, it will produce a plant that will produce a number of kernels of corn that will be in the likeness of the seed that was planted so it will be more productive through its death even than it was in its life. And Jesus is saying, that is like my death on the cross. I am like a corn of wheat that falls into the ground and dies, and it, because of my death, my death will bring forth much fruit. Now notice Mark chapter 4, verses 28 and 29. Mark chapter 4, verses 28 and 29. For the earth bringeth forth fruit of herself, first the blade, then the ear, after that the full corn in the ear. But when the fruit is brought forth, immediately he putteth in the sickle, because the harvest has come. In other words, when the harvest of corn or wheat is fully ripe, God's not going to wait. Immediately he puts in the sickle. Jesus is saying that my death will produce a harvest in the likeness of me. Notice Revelation chapter 14, 
verses 14 through 16. This is a description of the harvest, which takes place after a description of the 144,000 and of the three angels' messages. Revelation chapter 14, verses 14 through 16. And I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and upon the cloud one sat like unto the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him that sat on the cloud, Thrust in thy sickle and reap, for the time has come for thee to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. And he that sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. Notice what Ellen White says in Christ's Logical Lessons, page 67. The wheat develops first the blade, then the ear, after that the full corn and the ear. The object of the husbandman and the growing of the seed and the culture of the growing plant is the production of grain. He desires bread for the hungry and seed for future harvest. So the divine husbandman looks for a harvest as the reward of his labor and sacrifice. Christ is seeking to reproduce himself in the hearts of men, and he does this through those who believe in him. The object of the Christian life is fruit-bearing, the reproduction of Christ's character in the believer, that it may be reproduced in others. And um, then she goes on, this next slide says similar things. And then she quotes Galatians 5, 22 and 23. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. This fruit can never perish, but will produce after its kind a harvest unto eternal life. Now here's the famous statement. Page 69, when the fruit is brought forth, immediately he putteth in the sickle because the harvest is come. Christ is waiting with longing desire for the manifestation of himself in his church. When the character of Christ shall be perfectly reproduced in his people, then he will come to claim them as his own. It is the privilege of every Christian not only to look for, but to hasten the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now notice this, we don't often mention this, we're all who profess his name bearing fruit to his glory, how quickly the whole world would be sown with the seed of the gospel, quickly the last great harvest would be ripened, and Christ would come to gather the precious grain. And here's the reality. When the righteousness of Christ produces the fruit in our life that God designs for it to produce, we will be the best evangelist the world has ever seen. And let me say this as well. Don't think that you'll suddenly become an evangelist at the loud cry if you don't have a heart to win souls now. When the character of Christ is in your life, you will have a heart to win souls now. Now, Jesus is the seed that was planted. The last generation will be the harvest. What is the connection between Jesus and the last generation? Revelation chapter 14, 12 says, Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. What I'm going to show to you in the last few minutes here is this, is that Jesus on the cross is the same as Revelation 14, 12, patience of the saints, commandments of God, and the faith of Jesus. Let me show this to you. So the patience of the saints. In Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, it says, Wherefore, seeing we have so great a cloud of witnesses, we are surrounded with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience or endurance. It's the same word as Revelation 14, 12. Let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. That word for endured is the past tense for the word patience. So in other words, the 144,000 have patience the way Jesus did on the cross. 
You know, sometimes we say, oh, if I could just be a little bit more patient. You know, Ellen White says in the book Great Controversy, the season of distress that is before us will require a faith that can endure weariness, delay, and hunger. And if you want to know when your character is tested, it's when things are running late, when you're tired, and when you're hungry. Look, I don't need to have time with Jesus in the morning. Now, I do. But I'm just saying, I see natural carnal people who don't have a walk with the Lord, who if they have a good night's sleep and they have their meals on time and everything's running according to schedule through the day, can be cheerful, kind people to hang out with. But the question is, what is your character like when you miss a night of sleep or some hours of sleep and you miss a meal and things are running behind and everything's falling apart? What's your character like then? Ellen White says it's in a crisis that character is revealed. And Jesus reveals his character on the cross. He endured the cross and says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Jesus endured the cross. He is the seed that was planted. Not only that, it says that God's people keep the commandments of God. Let me go back on that. Interestingly, um, I'm sorry here. They keep the commandments of God. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 5 through 7, Jesus says, when he is speaking of Jesus, says, wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he says, sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not but a body hast thou prepared me and burnt offerings and sacrifices for sins thou hast had no pleasure and then he and it says then said i lo i come in the volume of the book it is written to me to do thy will O god so jesus said i a body was prepared for me to be a sacrifice on the cross and to do the will of god well in psalms chapter 40 verses 7 and 8 speaking it's the same hebrews 10 is quoting psalms 40 speaking of the same thing jesus says i delight Delight to do your will, O oh my God. Yea, your law is within my heart. So Jesus is saying, when I came to be a living sacrifice, a body was prepared me to die on the cross. As I'm hanging on the cross, I am demonstrating that I am living according to the will of God, and the will of God is God's law in my heart. Now that means Jesus lived the new covenant life because later in Hebrews 10, we see that the new covenant is God writing his law into our hearts and minds. And so Jesus is saying, I lived the new covenant life and I was a personification of a new covenant perfect life while I was hanging on the cross and my work in the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary right now is to write my law into your heart and mind so that you will keep the commandments of God the way I did while I was hanging on the cross. And not only that, not only do we see that Jesus endured the cross or had patience, not only do we see that Jesus was a perfectly obedient sacrifice as he kept the commandments of God, we see that the 144,000 have the faith of Jesus, which correlates with Galatians 2.20, I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God. That's the faith of Jesus. Now, Jesus exercised faith on the cross. Notice the statement from Desire of Ages 7.53, the Savior could not see through the portals of the tomb. Hope did not present to him his coming forth from the grave a conqueror or tell him of the Father's acceptance of the sacrifice. Going on, Christ felt the anguish which the sinner will feel when mercy shall no longer plead for the guilty race. Um, Then, so he's feeling like, 
I'm not sure I'm going to come out of here. I can't see through the portals of the tomb. But then page 756 says, suddenly the gloom lifted from the cross and in clear trumpet-like tones that seemed to resound throughout creation, Jesus cried, it is finished. Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Amid the awful darkness, apparently forsaken of God, Christ had drained the last cup of woe. So how did he speak faith when it seemed like everything was going down for him? It says he relied on the evidence of his father's acceptance heretofore given him. He was acquainted with his, the character of his father. He understood his justice, his mercy, and his great love. By faith, he rested in him whom it had ever been his joy to obey. And as in submission, he committed himself to God. The sense of the loss of his father's favor was withdrawn. By faith, Christ was victor. You know, a lot of times we allow feelings to dictate our actions rather than living by faith. Yet Christ didn't allow feeling to dictate his belief. He believed that he was conqueror. And he says, it is finished. Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. He exercised faith. That is the faith of Jesus. The third angel's message has great power. Patience, obedience, and faith in Revelation 14 describe the 144,000, but they also describe Jesus on the cross. The reason why the third angel's message has power is because it is the character of Jesus on the cross, and it is the third angel's message. This is to be proclaimed and demonstrated with a loud voice. When Adventism gains this experience, we will see the loud cry of Revelation 18 because Christ needs a people who have an experience of maturity, of patience, obedience, and faith commensurate to his experience on the cross before he can allow them to go through our cross experience, which is known as Jacob's time of trouble. So Jesus demonstrates the character needed while on the cross, and he is guaranteeing that before he comes back, he will have a group of people just like that. Revelation 18, verses 1 through 5, describe this message. The earth is illuminated with the glory of God's character. It announces that Babylon is fallen and that her sins have reached unto heaven. And her sins reach heaven, according to last day events 198, when the law of God is finally made void by legislation. So the loud cry will begin with the, with the Sunday law. Now listen, we will be able to proclaim the final fall of Babylon when we fully have the character of Jesus. Some of us, if Babylon were to fall right now and we saw the Sunday law, we would go out with the spirit of Babylon full of pride saying, the time's finally come. Now God's going to use me with all my knowledge and expertise to show the world why Babylon has fallen. And God can't use people full of pride to give the loud cry message. Their glory is going to be laid in the dust and you're going to have humble servants of God who will announce this message with the character of Jesus where they have the patience of the saints, they live obedient lives and they have the faith of Jesus that no matter what happens, we will be faithful to him. Then God will allow the National Sunday Law and the final events of earth's history. You realize God's not waiting on the Pope? We could have had this a long time ago. Probably every president since Ronald Reagan would have loved to have pushed this forward if truth be known. God uses, and it probably even was before then, but I'm just saying, God uses the three angels' messages to produce the 144,000 of Revelation 14, 12. The 144,000 are a reproduction of Christ's character, especially as personified on the cross. 
the 144,000 are able to give the loud cry with power because they are like Jesus. And listen, friends, that's Adventism. People can try to label this as some kind of strange idea or whatever, but this is Adventism. This is what we see in the Bible. This is what we see in the spirit of prophecy. And this is what gives us hope and courage and motivation to say, I am going to give my life fully to Jesus. He died on the cross and he is the seed. And on the cross, when I look at Jesus, I see a perfect Savior who endured the cross, who people are slapping him and spitting upon him and mocking him and saying, prophesy who smote you, prophesy who spat on you. Hey, if he be the son of God, come down from the cross, then we will believe in him. When I see Jesus treated like that, that gives me encouragement when the people of this world treat me in the same manner. And I can keep looking to him. Consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your mind. So I can look to a Jesus who endured the cross. I can look to a Savior who is my example in all things, who obeyed and he obeyed and was obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And I will love not my life unto the death. And Jesus on the cross cannot see through the portals of the tomb. And when I come to the trials of life now, I may not feel God's presence. I may not see deliverance, but I will speak and act upon faith knowing that God will be with me every step of the way so that when the final crisis of earth's history hits and I walk through Jacob's time of trouble, I will know by experience what it means to exercise faith. And when I am facing a death decree and when you are facing a death decree and it seems as if there is no way out, I will speak faith the way Jesus Jesus spoke faith, and then God can look to the onlooking universe and say, do you have any questions now? Satan was a perfect being in a perfect environment, and he said that my law couldn't be kept. And here I have a generation that have lived at the worst time in the history of this universe, and they are a perfect transcription of my character as I was on the cross. Is there any reason for us to let sin continue any longer? Case closed. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Here are a group of people like me. And by the grace of God, I pray that I will be among that number that stand with the Lamb on Mount Zion and will follow him whithersoever he goeth. Amen. Amen. Let's close with prayer. Father, we thank you for this time that we've had to reflect on the true gospel of Jesus Christ for these last days. And we thank you that you are all-powerful and you can deliver us from every sin in our lives, that forgiveness is freely available, that cleansing is freely available, and that you want to deliver us from our pride problem, from our self problem, from whatever cherished sin we are holding on to. We thank you that you love us and you are working with us and you are working to deliver us from the power of sin in our lives. Be with us and may we be faithful until you come. And may we see the fulfillment of these things very soon, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. This message was recorded at the GYC to the end in Houston, Texas. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org.